0: Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. If you are already a a subscriber, thank you very much. Uh, If you are not, please subscribe to my channel. There are going to be two YouTube videos every week, at least, um, from my podcasts. And you can always give us a thumbs up, please like them, so that others know that it's an enjoyable experience. Uh, Today, we have with us Donald Altman. And Donald Altman, M-A-L-P-C, is a psychotherapist, former monk, and award-winning author of over 20 books and CDs on mindfulness and spirituality. And you guys know how I love that topic. Um, An international mindfulness expert, speaker, and trainer, he has taught over 15,000 mental health clinicians, physicians, nurses and others, how to use mindfulness interventions for depression, anxiety, trauma, pain, and stress-related conditions. Um, and today we're going to be talking about his book that you can see behind him called travelers, which is a fantastic story. So welcome, Donald.
1: Well, hi, I'm really happy to be here. Randy. Thanks.
0: I'm happy to have you. Um, I, this is a topic that I'm just so passionate about. You know, I do narcissistic abuse work, but, um, my, my life, (laughs) let's just say that my essence is about spirituality and connecting in that way. So, Mm. um, this is right up my alley. So your book is called travelers. Now the word traveler can mean different things to different people. And I think it did to the psychiatrist this is a fiction book right
1: right right it's fiction although I have to tell you I've had people who read it say well that's you isn't it and I'm like no <laughs> this is fiction <laughs>
0: okay well it's about a psychiatrist yeah. and um and travelers um but at first you didn't really understand what a traveler was and I think most people would think that somebody that packs a suitcase and goes on trips So what is the kind of travelers we are talking about?
1: Well, the kind of traveler I'm talking about is, is kind of interesting because I didn't want to very specifically define it in the book. I wanted people to use their imagination and kind of get out of it. What they wanted is a traveler, an angel is a traveler, a catalyzing energy that moves us forward. Um, is is uh, a traveler, a state of mind, a way of being in this world, and you know I, I like to think of when you know when you're traveling, you're maybe you're out of your city, you're in a, in a foreign country or something, and uh, you depend on others. You really don't know the landscape, you don't understand how to get around. Maybe you don't know the language really well, and so you're kind of vulnerable in that way. And so I think of that we're all um, kind of travelers in that sense here on this planet and that everyone we meet is, is trying to find their way. And what we can do is to maybe help them if we're able to. And so that's what our psychiatrist in the story, he's the main character, the protagonist, but kind of the conclusion he comes to unwillingly in a way. I mean, he is a helper, but he's forced to kind of open up and see things in a fresh perspective.
0: Yes, he is. And it's, it's a, a fabulous story. Um, and this psychiatrist works in a psychiatric facility inpatient psychiatric facility, um, where it starts off where he meets this, this client called this patient named Mason, right.
1: Right. Um, right.
0: And Mason presents very depressed, lethargic flat and, um, and the psychiatrist takes it, takes this on as a project to try to figure this out. But in the meantime, the psychiatrist is shown things that he's supposed to see. And so, and then it all comes together. So tell us a little bit uh, more about the story and then we'll get into yeah. details.
1: Well, you know, I, you know, I've written a lot of nonfiction books and I felt I wanted to tell a story in fiction that could touch upon things and bring ideas in that I really couldn't get to in nonfiction and bring people into the world of what is it like to be on a you know, a psychiatric, in a psychiatric hospital, and what's it, What's going through the mind of a clinician as they're working with somebody? I mean, what is that really like? So I wanted to bring them into that world, but I also wanted to bring them into uh, a world of, you know, how do you recover from grief and healing? And the psychiatrist in the story has lost his daughter, and it's a devastating loss for he and his wife. So it's also an exploration of how does grief affect f- families? How do we deal with loss? How, And it's really driven a wedge between him and his wife in the story. And so he's kind of trying to navigate this and trying to find his own way. And here's a psychiatrist, right, who can't heal himself. (laughs) And he's very rational minded. And and he meets this young patient, as you said, Mason, who starts to have these uh, non-ordinary reality experiences. Which, as a clinician, you know, you're supposed to diagnostically label somebody and pathol and ends up pathologizing them. Well, you're a this or a that, right. right? And I've had clients, I'm sure you have, who have uh, come in to see me, and they're, oh, I'm a, am a, I'm a bipolar, I'm a depressive, I'm... and they take that label to heart, mm-hmm. and they, you know, slap it, like slap it on their forehead and identify with it, and. um what makes this psychiatrist kind of wonder if there's more going on for this young man is that synchronistically, he, uh, uh, he meets a uh, traveler, Jackie, he meets a mysterious woman and her, and her dog who appears to be a sentient canine who's on her shoulder all the time. His name is Bear. <laughs> and, and so traveler Jackie and Bear come into his life and you know, he he, it 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 kind of forces him to see that the things she can do are what we would call miraculous. We, you know, it's not understandable to a rational mind, right? And so he's he's forced to think about, uh, you know, how how are these things possible? What's happening here? And uh, slowly, he's drawn in uh, to taking a journey. Uh, it's kind of an unwanted spiritual or mystical journey and into these non-ordinary realms himself. And, you know, it's... Uh, so it's... it's What I really wanted to show with this story is that if we look around, you know, it's, the world is more miraculous and mysterious and beautiful and wonderful than we ever imagined, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But I think we are, as a culture, we're kind of... Um, in some ways stuck on the stranglehold of a materialistic view of things. And so we can, uh, you know, everything's got to be science-based, everything. And, and and that's part of the world that he's in, in the mental health uh, hospital that he's in, right? And, and I know that too. I mean, even, um, you know, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of mental disorders, is a super thick book. <laughs> and it's, you know, and to get insurance paid, you've got to have a diagnosis. So you're almost forced to buy into this system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what's kind of interesting is even for the first time now, there's something called prolonged grief disorders added to the DSM. Mm-hmm. So if your grief lasts more than a year, there's you know something's wrong with you you need you you know the good news is that it will be paid for by insurance but the other side is that it's stigmatized as if everybody should just get over grief in a year Or there's something wrong with you and uh you know how how can that be when you lose a daughter or something uh, profound happens it might be a lifetime of of grieving and everybody grieves in different ways so you know it's caused kind of a introversing uh, interesting controversy in the mental health field but uh it's just an example of how uh sometimes these these labels cannot be helpful so i want i think it's important to bring in the spiritual side of our of our life and our world in you know if you're going into therapy if you're just reflecting inwardly for yourself we become a very outward oriented outward uh you know um directed as far as our attention goes and so we're not reflecting inwardly so much anymore we're looking at screens all the time we're you know and and the brain wires up from uh you know this prefrontal cortex the most human part of the brain behind the eyebrow behind the eyebrow ridge and the underside part of the brain is uh wires up from face to face connection and, um, you know, that's how we have self-knowing awareness, insight, empathy. And, you know, I, I think we might be losing some of that. So I I, I hope that this book re- helps people reconnect with what it means to find their wholeness again. And actually, as a mindfulness uh, teacher, I like to use the original meaning of sati, which is the Sanskrit word for mindfulness, which is... Um, self recollection and self remembrance. So it's kind of like bringing the, the fragmented, the lost parts of yourself together again,
0: there's so many things I can say to that number one, as you said, DSM five, it was going through my head. Um, I'm very familiar with the limitations of the DSM five and how detrimental these diagnoses and lacks lack of diagnosis can be Mm. to people who come up to, to mental health professionals, because the work that I do is, um, it's not recognized by the DSM five. There's such a thing as narcissistic victim syndrome It involves many different aspects. And unless the person, unless the syndrome as a whole is, um, is looked at and taken apart, people will not get better. And Mm. so they present with a lot of symptoms, but unless the symptom is, is treated as a whole, it's not going to be effective, Mm. but you're right. You asked me the question about bipolar. I have had so many people come to me and they're like, I've been diagnosed as bipolar. I've been put on lithium it was wrong for me. And I ask them about their behavior. You know, did you have three months or six months of manic and you know, no, Mm. but narcissistic abuse, the victim syndrome can appear to be it. There's a lot of ups and downs. It's very confusing, but they're not long prolonged one way and then prolonged the other way. You know, so mm-hmm. it's it there's a lot of misdiagnosis donald and um yeah I, yeah i the, the mental health field has a lot of work to do
1: yeah there are a lot of limitations there and there's so much complexity to these human beings we think that we can just take a pill and everything will be okay and sometimes i'm not saying medication isn't helpful but uh mm-hmm. we have this kind of fix it you know mentality we you know um it's almost a mechanical viewing ourselves as mechanical and, but you can't, you know, you can go in and replace a battery on a car, but you can't just replace an emotion, right? We're, we're complex beings. And, and uh, so, well, yeah, what you're saying is I, I really agree with you, Randy. They're just uh, there's a lot that we don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're very slow to embrace new concepts. So
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So a lot of people, I would say most people that come to me have seen a traditional therapist and they tend to get worse because Mm -hmm. they're asked to take responsibility for something they have no responsibility for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very weighty. It's very guilt producing and shaming. So, um, that's what I get. So you are a monk, or
1: well, I was a monk. You were a monk, I, okay. yeah. My, Tell I, don't us think about my that. I don't think my wife would like it if she thought I was a monk now. Okay.
0: <laughs> this was prior no, I, to, to your marriage, prior,
1: yeah. Prior okay, to okay, all right. And um, I had gone through a difficult time in my life. And think about the times when you really had to really are ready to make changes when you feel that that things keep repeating or negative patterns in your life keep repeating and you just don't see a way out. And that kind of happened to me. And I, uh, and around that time, I, I met a monk, somebody said, Oh, there's a a monk I'd like you to meet. And so I went to meet this monk. He was a Burmese monk and, uh, a well-known teaching monk from Burma who'd been in the U S since the seventies, I think. And, Uh, And the thing was, I felt from him such an incredible sense of kindness and compassion and availability. I mean, you know, I grew up in Chicago, and those kind of people uh, were not standing on the street corners of Chicago. In -hmm. fact, I don't think I ever met anybody like Uthi Lananda, which was his name. And uh, I found out he was ordaining, or he was, um, uh, rather, he was the Sayadaw, which means the abbot or the head of this monastery, and that I could ordain uh, with him as the teacher, and I really wanted to know how did he transform and become this kind of person? Because nobody's born like this, obviously. Um, and as again, it was at a time when I'd gone through some challenging struggles, and so I was able to ordain and go into the monastery and discover that what he loved teaching most was the loving kindness practice, yeah. and that was what had transformed him. Uh, And it was an incredible experience for me. I wasn't in the monastery for a whole long time. In fact, I went in realizing that I thought it would only be for a period of time. And in that tradition, it's the Theravada tradition, the old school of Buddhism. Uh, You don't take a lifetime vow. You take a vow kind of like, oh, I'll be here today. Every day is a new commitment, right? Yeah. So um, when I was ready to go, there's a beautiful ceremony for leaving the monastery. They hand back the robes and they... They give you some precepts that I still practice today. Uh, And I continued to work with the monks even after I left. It was a beautiful experience for me. And one of the first teachings that I got actually was, you know, they have a straight razor and and I had hair back then. And they shaved my hair off (laughs) and held a lock of my hair in front of me and said, this is not you. And I was kind of shocked. But what do you mean that's not me? (laughs) But it was about not identifying with, you know, uh, not grasping and attaching to the ego and to all the things we identify with. And I started to be able to, in the monastery, started to notice my thoughts that I was at war with a lot, by the way, which is the reason I was in there. And I started to notice that I could, you know, when I could grab onto these thoughts and they would pull me in different directions. Or I could just watch them and and without grabbing on and it was a very liberating experience for me to learn that and so there were a lot of good uh, you know I, I think life-affirming skills and plus just the idea of of not harming which is key idea in buddhism and mindfulness actually i think the real purpose of mindfulness is to help us notice our own suffering and so that we can then uh reduce suffering in ourselves and in others. So it was a uh, very important experience, with, and it's still with me. And it changed my whole life. I mean, I after I got out of the monastery, I started doing workshops on spiritual eating, because I had previously been a mindless eater. <laughs> and uh, and then people would come up to me after the workshops, and they'd whisper, whisper in my ear, you know, I have this anorexia problem, or I have this bulimia problem. And I realized, well, I don't know how to work with them. So I went back to school, went to graduate school and, and then worked in an eating disorder clinic after I had left school. And, uh, yeah. And I even, at one point was the, uh, vice president of the center for mindful eating, a wonderful organization. It's an international organization for clinicians, but also for lay people who just want to learn more about what is mindful eating, uh, so it's it's been an interesting journey and going into that monastery like I say just completely shifted my life in another direction.
0: So once a monk not always a monk I mean once you've been ordained a monk are you considered like could you go back and still be a monk if
1: you wanted to I, Well I could I could yeah I mean I I would have to get permission from my wife.
0: Right that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: from don't the think boss. she would al- I don't think she would want me to do that, but I would, uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure there are monks who leave and then go back for whatever reason. I would have to take the vows again. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, there are some 200 in that tradition, some 250 odd vows that you take as a monk. Uh, okay. and it's a law, it's a beautiful ceremony. Actually. It's like a two, two and a two and a half, three hour ceremony. But, um, right. yeah, I, it, and the thing is, I I don't want people to get scared away. I mean, you don't. I've always said you don't need to go into a monastery uh, to learn how to do these things and and how to uh, train your mind in positive ways uh, and change the patterning of your life and expand awareness. I think one of the best ways and uh, and throughout, you know, I have little things in in um, in travelers that I hope people will connect with that the therapist is trying to learn. He's given some uh, traveler. Jack keeps telling him he needs to uh, quiet his mind and find stillness. And she helps him do that in a couple different ways. And when he's able to find that stillness, he suddenly is able to exp- have his awareness grow and expand into the spaciousness. And uh, cause he's always filling up his mind with stuff. And I want our audience even to think how do you fill up your mind during the day are you you know uh, on you YouTube all the time are you on you know are you uh, texting and are you on social media and ways that you're not face to face with another person how much time do you spend in nature and I, you know I've asked clients this I've asked you know and I've done this myself as I think okay so because um, I technology is wonderful I'm not anti-technology but how do we create the boundary? What are you giving up when you're using technology that maybe you're not on your bicycle or maybe you're not outside taking a hike or, you know, we need balance. And that's, that's all I'm saying. You need balance in your life and we can do both. You can even be present. Like right now, we're uh, you're in uh, Florida. I'm in Portland. can't get much further away than that (laughs) in the states but but we're in this moment we're here we're bringing our attention to this moment Mm -hmm. right even though we're on this screen and i mean i feel like i'm connecting with you and with the audience out there and and it's that's beautiful so even though we're using technology we can be here and be present
0: yes what I found, I've been doing this show for 12 years, and um, I've interviewed over 500 people. Mm. And when I started doing this show, I've always been a little woo-woo. I mean, for years and years and years, long before other people were like this, I've always had spiritual beliefs and been connected, mm. things like that. And um, but I didn't have a community. Mm. And what I found doing this show, because I do tend to bring guests on that are focused in different areas of uh, spirituality and mindfulness. um, I've noticed how many people really are out there with these beliefs, but we've never been able to be mainstream because we've been judged, but there's enough people now that are into this, that it's becoming a lot more mainstream. Um, I think that the spiritual side of healing is highly important and it takes me, I don't jump into that with people right away because I don't Mm -hmm. want to feel as if, um, I'm going to go in that direction, but when I've known somebody for a while and I can find out what their level of connection is to mindfulness, consciousness, that kind of thing. Um, it really helps when I know that they're open to this information, because I know for me healing, most of the healing that I've done in my life has been through mindfulness and consciousness and meditation and, and, and connection to something other than myself. And I know that this physical world is just a very small part of who we are.
1: That is wow! I couldn't have said that better. I mean, that is really kind of at the core of uh, travelers too. This idea that there's so much more to us. There's a there's a quote in Travelers from uh, uh, that one of the psychiatrists. He goes, he's he, he thinks he's losing his mind actually in the story, and he goes to a trusted supervisor who had been to India and done some different spiritual things, which kind of frightens him the whole idea of that because he's been very much by the book his whole life. And and she says to him something from an Indian sage back in the nineteenth century by the name of Vivekananda. Uh, Vivekananda was one of the uh, first persons to bring some of these West uh, Eastern ideas to the West in the late eighteen hundreds. And uh, but he but she says this quote from Vivekananda: "The infinite library of the universe is in your own mind." Mm. And. And it's a, yeah, it's really something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we think about the outer universe a lot, <laughs> but we don't often think about the inner verse, the this incredible, vast connection that we have to all things. Mm-hmm. And when you open that up, uh, it can seem uh, scary for some people at first if they're able to connect with that. And of course, if you go to a, and, you know, and that happened to me when in my early 20s, I had a, a major depressive disorder, which stemmed from uh, childhood uh, trauma. And so uh, I was very, uh, you know, in, in at the height of it, I was had this oppressive depression, just a heaviness, right? Mm-hmm. And one night, lying in bed, I felt this sound, and it got louder and louder, it, like in my head, like a freight train, a vibration, okay. and it was so loud, I didn't know if I could contain it, and and in that moment, it's funny, I made a decision, said, I'm going to see what this is, it must be natural somehow, and it culminated in uh, this kind of almost oscillating energy, and a, an out-of-body experience and i continued to have those intermittently but i never told my psychiatrist who I was seeing at the time which is probably a good thing mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you been would have been diagnosed as schizoid disorder or something like yeah, that right
1: yeah right right uh but what it did was it gave me a sense of relief i didn't say oh there's something wrong with me oh my god i'm seeing these things but it gave me a sense of relief as if to say hey you're you're more than just what's happening to you right now you're mired in this condition the situation yes it's difficult but you're not just this and so it gave me another view of things and I didn't try to come any any conclusion about what that meant but it just it allowed me to see that there was more than just this material physical aspect of myself Mm -hmm. and uh and 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 like i say it was almost probably may not have happened if i hadn't had this depressive episode so i saw it as kind of a spiritual initiation actually so we're initiated in different ways in different times of our lives but often during challenges that we face and so yeah so you know we can open up to these experiences and i'm not it's not to say that if i had you know uh, had an episode where i uh, was unable to function as a result of it or you know that's different then, then you may have a real problem but uh so uh you know we need to put uh things in context too which is important And we don't always do that but putting our issues and Things we're facing in a context of the bigger picture. There was another uh, uh, teacher in the actually last century whose uh, name of Krishna and he said, "It is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society." <laughs> <laughs> you know, if a fish is swimming in dirty water, it doesn't know it thinks the, it doesn't know the pond is dirty, right? right. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, if you can, I'm a big picture person. You know, I, I take something and I expand it to what I think the, um, the essence of truth where this point, mm. you know, um, and I try to share that with my clients, but for me, you know, it has been very healing and very supportive and it, it gives me comfort to know, to be able to look at things in terms of that, because like one of the biggest questions I, I get is what did I do wrong? Why mm-hmm. is this karma? Why am I being victimized this way? Why am I being hurt this way? I must have done something wrong, you know? And mm-hmm. for me, the overview of this is, oh no, <laughs> mm-hmm. this is so, This is something you signed up for to overcome because there's so much more for you. And I know that yeah. the other side of narcissistic abuse is just glorious. It's so freeing. But the work towards getting there is all internal. It's all about uh mindfulness, paying attention to what you're saying to yourself, focusing on mm. self-love and filling that well so that because most people that are going through this are givers, they want to help, they're healers at heart. Mm. And, but when you don't know how to do it, you give from a dry well and, and you're exhausted and you're stressed and you're tired and you're worn out. Um, and so there's really only one way to be a giver and that's to give to yourself first. So to yeah. this work, you know, and also internal validation versus external validation. So, um, this work is really about, I take people inside, um, and make them recognize the importance of their place in this universe and how special they are, uh, because narcissists tell us that there's something wrong with us. Mm. We're faulty. We're ugly. We're worthless. We're lazy. I mean, they they tell us that we're all these things that we're not. So,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, it's a. Uh... You know, that uh I, I love what you said there, that what uh, even the difficult things or the trauma that we face is, uh, in a way, a gift. Mm-hmm. As now it might be hard to look at this, uh, that right now, mm-hmm. when you're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. But what we gain from it and what we learn from it is, can be amazing and how we can grow from it. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, the first 30 years of my life were a disaster and it was one after another after another after another and if I would have stayed in that mindset um that would have been the the trajectory of my life I just figured I this is how it would be you know until I had enough and I said you've got to change there's something about you what you're doing what you're the way that you're thinking you you have to change that but it it that's where the spiritual journey began when I finally said yeah. I have no control over this. This is taking, this is, this is running my life and I can't control it. Um, and so I hit bottom and then there's only one way to go. And that's up. You can go down, (laughs) but you can, but you know, if you want to go up and a lot of people get these signs from, um, the spirit world, spiritual world, um, and deny them. They look past them Mm. because they're scared or they think nobody will understand. And that's, you know, the doctors mainly don't, won't understand unless they've had the experience themselves. Yeah. But I think we all get those whispers at times. uh, And it's a matter of looking at them or not looking at them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, yeah, you might, I mean, it can come to you in so many different ways. Uh, insight and uh, a message. and uh, for example, I remember one day I was I was going through a, a period in my life where I was thinking about making a major change and I was grappling with that, with letting go. And I went to the park nearby, and there are all these beautiful trees and I sat down and and I noticed a couple of leaves falling. And I looked up, this big leafy tree, and then some more leaves fell and all of a sudden, this tree, it was fall, beginning of fall. This tree let go all its leaves at one time. I have, And it was a shower of leaves falling on me. And yeah, I have never experienced anything like that again. But in that moment, I was like, well, okay, <laughs> I'm ready to let go. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is nature's way, isn't it? And, and nature has so much to teach us. Nature's way is letting go and moving into new seasons. Mm-hmm. And we have to allow that to happen.
0: Right. Synchronicities. I just, I did a show a couple of weeks ago on synchronicities with an, oh, ac- yeah. an expert that does that, and he really takes it apart. Um, but what you said reminds me of that part in your book where it rains butterflies.
1: Oh yeah. Is that,
0: yeah. is that related to that experience?
1: You know, not, not consciously, but, um, I o- always have had an affinity for butterflies and I mean, I've always loved them. I never thought of that being the, uh, that turns out I don't want to give anything away in the book, but uh, the butterflies came to me uh, in an unusual way mm-hmm. that I thought of putting them in the book. Cause originally I had thought of something else instead of a butterfly, mm-hmm. but I felt I was kind of imposing that using my, my own, personality to impose what kind of animal or creature i wanted him to connect with mm-hmm. and i wanted i thought of, well a tiger or a, you know some powerful big animal and it's like it just it wasn't working and i said i've gotta step back and then i did my hiking and you know sitting in nature and suddenly this idea of the butterfly came to me you know it's a funny thing i almost feel like in some ways this book wrote me Instead of me writing the book and, uh, and the characters had a story to tell it's, a, uh, it's, it's, pretty different way of, of writing and letting it, letting it just grow like a plant almost yeah. organically.
0: I do believe the book wrote you. I, I believe all books write themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm a writer. <laughs>
0: I've, I've yeah. books too. and. When I go back and read them, I put them down and I go back and read them a year later or whatever. And we look at it and I go, I didn't write that.
1: I've had the same exact thing. Yeah. Uh, Where did that come? Right. Yeah.
0: That's not of me. I wouldn't say that. And yet it's profound.
1: Yeah. No, it's a a beautiful thing to connect with our creativity. And I'm always amazed when somebody says, oh, I'm not creative. (laughs) I think that's what is a human birthright really is our creativity to connect to something greater than ourselves and have that imagination as humans. Uh, and it's a, and it's a beautiful thing to connect to, I think.
0: I agree. So what are you currently doing?
1: Well, I am, uh, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm still training, still do a lot of training of mindfulness and, it's uh, mostly on the web now since COVID. And I really miss the in-person trainings because <laughs> uh, the in-person trainings were a lot of fun because I got to really interact more. And I have people get into groups and do things and I would walk around with the groups and that was a lot of fun. And
0: Different energy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's different energy. Uh, so I'm doing some of that. I'm still you know, writing and um, uh, thinking about a sequel to Travelers so that's fun and have another nonfiction book, uh, thinking of, uh, writing. So. Great. How long does
0: it take you to to write a book?
1: Well, uh, usually about a, I'd say about a year. Yeah. Same if I had to give a a general number. Right. If you can. It's a lot of time uh, to
0: focus on it. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. A lot of time to focus on it. And I'm, the kind of writer who will sit down every day and spend that time, uh, you know, focusing. And I think it's good. Even if nothing comes to me on that day, at least I sat there and I'll rework what I had done the previous day. Uh, you know, just refine it a little bit, see if new ideas come to me. But it's an interesting uh, process. I think I, I must have fallen in love with being a writer at a young age. I remember going to, uh, in grade school, we would have a book fair every year. Right. And I was so excited to go to that. It was in this little auditorium. We had little public school in Chicago, and they had the books laid out on the tables. And I could not have found anything more like a treasure, opening up a, a treasure box, right, with all these wonderful jewels of different images and colors and knowledge in there. It was just so fun, much fun for me. And of course, I wanted all the books. My mother would always say, no, you can, you can choose one. <laughs> uh, and so that today, I think it's come full circle for me. I don't know if this is true of you as a writer, but the idea now that I can uh, connect with people from the other side as being the author of a book and that people can see that book uh, somewhere and they can read that uh, just brings you full circle that I was, uh, and I've always still enjoyed reading yeah, um, have you, have you found that it's come?
0: So for that? me, for me, it just hit me on the side of it was like, boom, you're going to write. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was somebody who I hated English. I never learned grammar. I, it was the most boring thing in the world to me. Yeah. I didn't. I mean, I like to read as a, as a young adult, but in school, no, I dev- never liked to read. And then it was like you're writing a book. And I said, okay. So I wrote it. <laughs> I wrote it and I revised it and revised it, then sent it to an editor and realized I don't know how to write. And she gave me all these tips. And then I rewrote it several times and gave it back. And I learned through this process how to write. Yeah, Um, by making all my mistakes. And I learned grammar, I learned just the way to write. Um, And once I started, I love it. (laughs) I'm a very creative person. I do a lot of creative things, but and I must do something creative every day. So if I can write, I'm satisfied.
1: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and no, it's a great fun. way to reach people, and it's also a great way to get your your thoughts down, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I'm into you know I'm into giving people a lot of different practices, things that are uh, practical, and mm-hmm. so a lot of my books include those kinds of things, and it's fun for me to create tools for people too. I guess I just like that. It's like a oh. giant cross. It's, it's, it's a giant puzzle putting a book together, and every word is a different puzzle piece it is yeah
0: it is it really is it's it's a work it's a you know a work of love uh it's a birth yeah you you give to these to the book so tell us about some of your other books
1: well um you know the first first book i wrote was art of the inner meal first uh real nonfiction book and i wrote that while i was in the monastery actually and that is it. Looks at different traditions and how's it, how they use food in a as a spiritual path. And uh, that was a, a a fun book for me to write. And it was one of my first books that I did in uh, where I you know did a lot of research and uh, put that together. Uh, probably my most one of my most popular books is the Mindfulness Toolbox and that is a book that um is very popular with clinicians and with individuals and it's got detailed handouts in there for anxiety depression stress and and uh, and chronic pain so it has a lot of really helpful tools okay. in there um
0: I'd like to cover that on an interview with you
1: Oh okay yeah,
0: yeah. so if i you know if you um have your publisher send me a copy, then we'll schedule another date and we'll talk about that because I think that would be really beneficial.
1: Oh, great. Great. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. I even have a book uh, that for people who want to learn mindfulness kind of from the ground up, like a structured way of learning mindfulness is called Simply Mindful, a seven week course and personal handbook for mindful living. Hmm. And that uh, has about, 36 different exercises and mindfulness practices, but it's really teaching you mindfulness rather than just using an intervention. Some people actually want to learn mindfulness on their own. And so it's a self-guided way to learn mindfulness.
0: What is the first thing we should do when we're trying to learn mindfulness?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And I would say a couple of things I'd say one is uh, start where you're struggling, instead Ooh. of trying to push away, right? Everybody's, oh, I need, to, I need to be safe. I want to be feel comfortable. No, I think what we need is to look at the rough, the jagged edges that are, uh, you know, sharp against us that might be, uh, you know, annoying us or irritating us in some way and work with that and start to observe that, right? The second thing we can do is to breathe. Breathing is wonderful, just so regulating, and it it focuses us on our biological nature, right? We're so much stuck in our heads. We're very much a mental culture, and sometimes we forget we have a body, so (laughs) breathing can help us get into the body, and also one of the great benefits of breathing, if you get in the body... Research shows you're more able to name your emotions, you're able to sense what's happening in the body and connect with deeper feelings. Uh, uh, can I share a story about that? Sure. Yeah, so I you know, I, I was working uh, with people who had issues around eating, and there was one woman who would, uh, she would go up to a drive-through and order copious amounts of food, two, 3,000 calories at a time, because she had an uncomfortable feeling she was trying to make go away. And so as we talked about this, and this was in a group setting, I said, uh, I said, well, have you ever tried to give a name to that feeling, what it is you're trying to make go away? And she said, "Uh, no, I never did. I said, well, here's something I'd like you to try to do is the next time you go up to the drive-through, I want you to pause, just wait in the parking lot first, and see if you can give a name to that sensation before you drive through to get all that food. And she came back and she shared with the group the most amazing story. She sat in the parking lot for forty minutes, okay, and then suddenly she gave a name to this feeling she had, this uncomfortable feeling, and she said, "It's loneliness." And once she said, "Once I gave it that feel that that name," she said, "I realize it's not physical hunger. I don't physical food isn't going to satisfy this feeling." And she drove home. And and story, it's such a great story. I mean, she was very courageous. I can't imagine sitting there, um, you know, like she did, alone in that parking lot with that feeling and you know being present with it and so that again is looking at the hard things in us right as a way to help us heal and so i thought it was very courageous of her but it's a beautiful story of uh, you know of how she got insight
0: it takes a lot of courage you're right i mean that is that is a beautiful story it takes a lot of courage to look at the thing that hurt thing that hurts you the most because that's usually the thing that we're most afraid of and we think it's hurt it can hurt us if we look at it. And but there yeah. the way to healing is through the pain. So there's no other way to do this. You know, you can try yeah. to <laughs> numb you can circle around it. Um, it's not going to go away till you go through it.
1: Yeah. So the, I mean the food was medication for her. It was mm-hmm. medicating the, the pain away, right? And uh instead of looking at it.
0: So with this um mindfulness, um that you've developed? How does it make you look at the field that you invested so much time in learning and getting certified (laughs) for?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to tell you one thing. When I first went back to grad school, uh, and that was, let's see, that was in the early, as around 2000, 2001, I was really concerned if they would accept mindfulness as if I could bring it into the therapy world, and what I discovered, you know, that was a time when you know John Kabat-Zinn's work was now starting to expand, and John Kabat-Zinn, whose mindfulness-based stress reduction of course started in the late um, '70s with um, pain reduction and psoriasis and things like that, uh, but it eventually started to get into the mental health field, and so the timing—I probably couldn't have been had better timing than I did so uh, I you know it was still very fresh at that time it had I don't think there were too many ways that it was you know it wasn't being used in as many ways as it is now but I I'm kind of a I'm a kind of a person who uh, kind of doesn't follow the straight lines anyway <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, I curve around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I uh, <laughs> I'm just, so I just want I to found, pull
0: out a notebook while you
1: talk. So I found ways to work with mindfulness that,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, it, with clients that in very small ways, and a lot of times I would never even use the word mindfulness. I found that I wanted to meet the client where they were at, and I wanted to expand that vocabulary <laughs> of mindfulness so that. Like like I had a lady who came into me one time and she said, "Oh, I know you, you know you." Uh, she came in for some uh, bulimia issue or something, and she said, and she was in the in the mental health field. And she said, "You know, I uh, given my religious background, I don't want to. I, I I'm not comfortable with the word mindfulness." And I said, "Okay, we'll never use that word." Yeah. <laughs> and so I've become better at adapting. And so I think adapting is a key word here. Instead of just adopting wholesale uh, some therapeutic approach or something, we need to adapt and we need to adapt in our lives to things that are around us. So uh, I always, always found different terminology, different words. You know, if somebody liked to cook, I would say, well, maybe you could learn to put that problem, put it on a back burner for a little bit, you know, or how, what's that? How's that stirring your pot using metaphors <laughs> connecting with, That's Good. yeah, you know, because we know that metaphors really light up the brain and, in ways that uh, just other words might not. So finding ways to work with people. One time in Hawaii, and I love Hawaii, I was doing a workshop uh, in uh, why I think it was right across from that famous beach in Hawaii, the, on Honolulu. But, uh, beach. Yeah, that's it. And so a lady came up to me. And during the break time, and she said, oh, she said, I, we have a word for for uh, mindfulness in Hawaiian. And it's, uh, she said, it's Nalu, not too fast, not too slow in the flow. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, there, I, I think you can find it in a lot of places uh, and that clients might have used the concept of mindfulness in one way or another, and then just kind of tapping in, learning about them, and learning how to, how they have used it and connecting them with it a little more strongly.
0: Yeah, I was just, um, I'm going through this, um, this binder of information. During the the pandemic, they were offering courses at some of the top, okay, there it is, Demystifying Mindfulness. I took this course, which university was giving this it was all the uh, the ivy league um universities were all giving free courses of course they were audited for free you know you could,
1: oh yeah. yeah yeah
0: and so um i took a course called demystifying mindfulness back then and uh it was, it's it was really interesting I'm trying to yeah i don't remember how who uh, actually offered this course right here i don't have it but i was just trying to see what it was called
1: um yeah well you know it's interesting because i my understanding of mindfulness and how to work with people has changed and i hope deepened over the years that i've been doing this and i uh again i don't i you know i look at it as a very a little differently than maybe some other people traditionally do even though i understand the traditional aspects of it how different what is your
0: What's different?
1: Well, uh, just that I, you know, again, I try to adapt it to people. I don't put mindfulness in a little box and say it's this, right? Um, I try to find ways for people to apply it in ways that they might, also, might already be doing, but aren't consciously aware of it. So it's bringing awareness up a notch, right? Being aware of, oh, okay, uh, I'm washing my hands. I can feel the water here. Uh, you know, as I'm washing my hands, I can feel my hands moving. I can feel my arms, you know, when I'm walking, uh, out the door, I can feel my arm reaching out. You know, I can feel my feet on the floor. I can observe what's around me and, oh, I can start to notice the colors. I can start to notice things. So it's, they're already doing things, but in a, maybe an unintentional way, not bringing intentionality. I'm adding a layer of awareness for them, and it helps them get more present. Uh, I like to talk about gratitude a lot in some of my work. And in the mindfulness toolbox, I have a thing called the GLAD technique, G-L-A-D, which is an acronym, and the G means one thing I'm grateful for. And the whole idea with this G-L-A-D is to get you out of your head and into your life, into seeing things a little more vividly. And G is one thing I'm grateful for. The L is one thing I learned. And that might be I learned something new about myself, or even talking with you today, I've learned some new things about uh narcissism and a little thing little and I've learned about you and some of your experiences and how you work. So L is learn. Uh the A is uh is uh accomplishment. So what one thing have I accomplished today? And this is kind of an interesting one because we often think about accomplishment as that bigger goal at the end of the rainbow. But I like to have people think about their day-to-day accomplishments, uh, you know, uh, getting enough sleep, getting enough nutrition. I think getting dressed in the morning is highly underrated as an accomplishment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so we need you know, we need to give ourselves that pat in the back. Uh, for all the little things we do, without which those bigger goals would not be possible. And then the D is delight. What one thing brought you a sense of uh, of uh, joy today? What one thing made you laugh or smile? Right? And uh, or one beautiful thing that you saw. So uh, and when I gave this G L A D to a man who he was severely, acutely depressed. And it was the winter in Portland. And so I told him about this. And I said, I'm, I, I said, every time you go through a different threshold, a threshold could be a lot of things. It could be walking into another room. It could be looking out a window into a new view. It could be every time you get in your car. But every time you enter a new space or cross over a threshold, I said, I want you to look for the GLAD. And he came back. Uh, and I said, So how did that check me in with him? How did that uh, work with you? And he said, Well, said i noticed a bird chirping that reminded me of springtime and it gave me hope (laughs) yeah
0: i like that Uh, gratitude is 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 a very important part of my work and when i feel somebody really stuck yeah i'll say for the next week until you see me i want you to focus entirely on gratitude I, Mm. i want you to look at everything a different way i want you to be you know you find things to be grateful for, uh, because it takes you out of your head. Yeah, And it puts things in perspective, you know, and what you were talking about, um, you know, the senses and, uh, you know, what, what you're talking about really is living moment to moment, living in the moment, being very present.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because when you're doing those things, when you're using sensory, you know, you're using your sensory, uh, whatevers and, um, <laughs> and you're, you know, you're just noticing things. Um, you're not in the past and you're not, you're not in the past where you have regrets and pain yeah. and not in the future where you have fear.
1: So true. Yeah, it's absolutely.
0: Right. You know, so
1: <laughs>
0: really, it really disturbs me not, not you. really disturbs me, um, that they've got this word woke talking about mm. talking about our society and and how people have become and the word woke you know it used to it used to be awaken you know for spirituality yeah. now they're saying they're woke and i think it's really misleading because i don't believe they are woke what is your thought
1: <laughs> well maybe it's broke not woke <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's good Well, anytime you're trying to impose your ideas on another, uh, you know, uh, that's not actually what I would call a spiritual practice, (laughs) right? Uh, Trying to understand one another and open up to them and being able to have dialogue is, you know, a, a path that I think is more beneficial and That's uh right. and not shutting down conversation right not shutting it down which i think right. that might have the effect of doing
0: i don't know where they came up with that word it it's as far yeah it it's, does not fit what they're it's not a label that fits what they're trying to describe at all i don't i don't get it um so do you have a website
1: yeah 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 my website is mindfulpractices.com that's it's m-i-n-d-f-u-l-1-l practices.com and that's one word i have a newsletter too randy which uh comes out about once a month and uh often links over to i i write a, a blog for psychology today oh called the, yeah called the practical mind practical mindfulness blog okay and so i always have some new research some new uh you know, a practice and ideas for self growth that are, are in there. And uh, I think what's the one I just wrote was uh, several, one about uh, grief. And I wrote one about, Oh, the single best and hardest thing to give up. Uh, <laughs> Cause it's, it's the season of Lent right now. And uh, the single and hardest, best thing to give up is, speaking and talking <laughs> when I talk and I explain why that might be yeah yeah because mm-hmm. we kind of when we're when we're a little more silent it doesn't and I'm not talking about just completely not talking but how can we listen better and not and not have our cups so full with our own ego and our own ideas and empty our cups a little bit and open to others and listen. And I have a four part, uh, called H E A R the here practice is, is on that. Uh, you can find that the on blog? that, uh, on the,
0: on the blog? blog,
1: on the blog. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. I'm going to take a look at those things. Oops. I froze. See, we got all the way through and there I am. Well, hopefully I'll come back by the end, but we are, oh, there I am. So, um, we are at the end and, um, I've really enjoyed this, Donald. It's it's been amazing. I mean, and I'm I'm glad that I got to meet you. I'm glad that I got to experience your book, and um, I hope to you. experience the other another book, uh, and we'll discuss it because this was just great a great conversation.
1: So thank that's you. great. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much, uh, and uh, much success to you, Randy. Thanks. Thank
0: you. Same to you. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye
1: bye. Bye.